Why doesn't free cash flow matter to oil companies on this energy edition of Industry Focus? Greetings, fools. I am Sean O'Reilly, joining you here from Fool Headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia. To my left is Tyler Crow. How are you today, sir? Doing pretty good. You Looks all like teed up? I'm, I think so. We'll see how this goes. I mean, I am solo. We're without, we're without Taylor this week. He's uh, doing a Motley Fool Canada member engagement thing, doing a little bit of cross-company marketing We will miss here. you, Taylor, if you're listening. We'll pour, uh, we'll pour out uh, some coffee. Yes, on the floor for you. Uh, so before we get into... Uh, I really want to talk about free cash flow because I was messing around on S&P Capital IQ and it's not pretty. But anyway, before that. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Um, Obama's climate plan just came out this morning. Really cool article on Bloomberg. And uh, it really is that bad for coal companies. Um, coal has not exactly been a boom industry in recent years. Um that's being generous, I assume. It's very, that's yeah. a very generous statement. Apparently, these uh, government analysts came out last month and said, oh, yeah, uh, production from coal for you know just our electricity generation is probably going to drop about 45 gigawatts. This new report comes out today under Obama's plan, and it's going to be actually 90, so twice as bad. Um, we're not really here to debate the merits of fighting or not fighting climate change, but we are investors looking at the coal industry. So what's going on here, Tyler? So the, the basic idea behind this is... Uh, <clears throat> looking at from an emission standpoint with the inclusion of emissions uh, abating technologies things that you can do at a coal generating plant or other anybody basically any fossil fuel generating power plant you can add components to it to actually reduce the pollutants that you put into the air they're normally called scrubbers because that was the buzzword a couple of years ago was clean coal. Like clean coal. What happened with that? Yeah. Well, the idea is is that you can actually build uh, systems that can basically scrub the pollutants out of the air. There's a lot of various techno- uh, technologies and ways to do this. You can Are use these giant air filters think, like the ones I have. Think in my of air it like the catalytic converter in your car. Okay. Um, basically, it is there to take uh, remove certain components using either chemical or physical properties. Uh, that can basically clean out what is coming out of a smokestack. The problem, or the uh, it, while it does work, I mean, we've it has shown the technology can be applied and be practical. The problem is, is is it economical? And that's one of the really hard parts when it comes to these sort of processes. One of the, I'm sorry, I I went to engineering school, so I'm going to really nerd out here for a second. We can do anything. Plug your ears, folks. We can build. We can do anything. It's always about the cost and how much we're willing to pay to do it. And if we look at some of these pollution abatement technologies uh, for coal plants, they're just too expensive to uh, compete versus something like a natural gas or versus an alternative energy. Where I say, if I am a, if I'm a power producer, I'm a, a a utility. Let's take a, a southern company for an example. If if I'm looking at a coal comp, a coal plant that is 40 years old, and which a lot of them in the United States are today, and say were to say, do I want to reinvest money into this coal plant to bring it up to snuff on these emissions, while or which is going to cost a lot of money, not just for that, but also for the retrograde of the entire system itself. But or I can do that or I can 
invest in a new natural gas plant, which that'll is last be, another. It'll be cheaper. Yeah. It'll be more efficient. Uh, I, uh, my fuel costs will go down. There are, uh, you know, it's not the only factor, but it can be a very large factor in doing it. And when you look at the cost of alternatives today, natural gas, solar, uh, emergence, wind, these things are making it so much harder from a cost competitive standpoint that that is why these things are getting uh, written down. It's not like we're saying you can't use this coal plant. We're saying you have to do this to this coal plant to make it up to snuff. And and that makes it not economical. And it makes it not economical. Uh, I realize we're in the studio and not like on the internet with tons of reports and everything, but um, is clean coal even worse than solar right now? Like, What do you mean ballpark. worse? More expensive. Just ballpark it. Basically, yes. Wow. Not e- it's That's not kind even, of bad. Not even in the wheelhouse. The two, ty- the two companies that are working on clean coal, which is – it's called – it's called clean coal because it's a nice buzzword. The technical is gold. You can sell it. Yeah. Uh, here we go. <laughs> More nerdy engineering stuff. People are just going to turn this thing off in about 30 seconds here. It's called gold coal gasification. Basically, we're extracting hydrogen gas from coal and then just burning the hydrogen gas rather than, you know. That sounds complicated. Burning coal. Yeah, it's a little complicated. Pro- the thing is, is when you do that, it's expensive. And based on the cost per kilowatt constructed today for a coal gasification plant duke and uh, duke energy and southern company are building them right now the the cost per kilowatt produced uh is equivalent to a new nuclear facility which is basically the most expensive yeah and i keep hearing how like we you know more or less have unlimited natural gas here in the united states so i'm sitting here like you know we have a lot of coal but why are we going to use it like (laughs) it's 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 the the tough tough thing is just the the construction on those things and it's like one of those sort of things where it could get less expensive if more people were willing to spend the money to bring down bring down the technology costs however they are so prohibitively high right now in comparison to other options that it's really really hard for people to kind of cross that bridge right so uh real quick before we move on because you know we're obviously you know short on time because we want to get to the good stuff but um they're obviously a footnote in the entire industry but uh how bad is the future for metallurgical coal because we still need to make steel oh that is this is a time a tough one. debate for another can day we but... still, can we can we try that one next that week? that is more than let's, fine let's try that yeah. next week um this actually does have a really good lead into how the climate debate is affecting the oil majors because for years exxon bp shell even total like they were just we'll just ignore it maybe it'll go away um, now, they actually kind of want a voice at the table because they realize the alternative is decisions will be made without them. Um, so what's going on with that today? Total, basically all the European majors are actually getting together and actually doing something here. Right. All the European majors are getting together and basically building a think tank on how they can build their – not only how, not necessarily on shaping policy, but how can they build their business in a way that is a little bit – more adaptive to what's going to happen in climate change policy. What I saw from the report, uh, it was another Bloomberg report that we're talking about on this one. What I saw was it seemed a lot of talk for right now, but not a whole lot of action. We'll see what happens when it actually, we start to get some results in this. The biggest thing more than anything else that these guys are looking to do is show the economic benefit of you or economic and environmental benefit of 
switching from coal to natural gas more than anything else. Because it is a lot they, cleaner. Yeah. Like, there's no debate about when, that. When it comes to oil, they don't really have a leg to stand on in terms of the climate argument. Um, there are other arguments they could make on terms of industrialization of the developing world, which... Oil has more energy per right. BTU, so and you it's can't cheap. get around that. It's yeah. cheap. You can use it in that way. And, you know, there are those social impacts of, you know, improving the the developing world through industrialization that fossil fuels make possible. So, But from an environmental standpoint, oil is a tough leg to stand on right now. Natural gas, you have an option. You can show that natural gas is less harmful to the environment than coal. I'm not saying that it's completely you mean clean. mean oil? I'm sorry. Yeah. No, natural gas better than coal. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. Uh, and that's because coal is still the largest uh, fossil fuel or largest energy source in the world by far. And as long as that takes the lead, we uh, natural gas can cut some of that out. And that is their option. And that is a way that they can move forward because it provides them some sort of future that doesn't involve, you know, just fighting it with oil all the time. Got it. OK, so. uh Moving on to actually the crux of what I want to talk about today, and we've got, I don't know, six minutes left. Um, Very deep philosophical question. You can only pick two of these. And I was looking at random oil companies and S&P Capital, like you, I was just looking at their uh, free cash flow. And uh, for our listeners that are curious, I literally just took cash from operations minus capital expenditures, because that's what they're spending every year to find oil and get it out of the ground. Um, You have to pick two between free cash flow generation production growth or reserve replacement because a lot of emps have two of the three uh but a lot of time like i'd say 90 percent of the time at least from what i saw very poor free cash flow profile um does you just have to spend 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 just be very bullish on am i doing future demand am i doing this from a uh, producing companies' perspective or from an individual investor's perspective? This is the Motley Fool, so I'm going to go with option B, individual investors. Oh, well, that's a simple one. Uh, <laughs> first and foremost, I'm going to say free cash flow, followed by reserve replacement. And the nice part is, is by only picking two, I can get the third one by default. That's almost like the third one for free. If I have a company who can consistently generate excess cash from its uh, production while at the same time replacing the reserves that it's doing in a cost-effective manner in a cost-effective manner then i've immediately have a company that has extra money extra earnings left over to do what it needs to do to grow it can either do it through growing production it can do it that through paying a dividend it can do that from buying back shares but either way by having that free cash flow it can grow and if I've got that and it can re- replace its reserves, it hopefully even better than what it's producing, then all of a sudden I've got a sustainable platform to work off of. If I am just growing production for the sake of growing production, uh, let's say it's, you know, it's killing my cash flow while at the same time uh, you know, I may be able to keep up with my reserve replacement rates, uh, it, you're killing value over the long term. You may be keeping the lights on today, but you know, three, five years from now, you're not. You may be at a point where you're taking on debt 
to finance those options or to finance that growth, and then all of a sudden, or issuing equity, or issuing also equity, a good and <laughs> then you could find yourself in the position that you see a lot of companies in the space today. Well, and that's what led me to uh, you know ask this question because I looked at the uh, cash flow profiles of just four companies. I don't want to get too crazy here with the numbers on air, but um, 2012, 2013, and 2014, um, Sandridge Energy, 2012, negative free cash flow of 2.2 billion. 2013 negative 645 million and last year was 950 million. Halcon ranged from negative 1.1 billion to minus 900 million. EOG Resources, the uh, winner of the bunch behind the next guy, Exxon, um, they went in 2012. They had negative uh, free cash flow of two billion, but they've been growing production like crazy, and they had positive free cash flow the last two years, um, 269 million and 403 million. And uh, the the winner of the bunch, and we now see why Goldman Sachs likes them so much. Uh, Exxon, twenty twelve, twenty two billion dollars in free cash flow. Oh, that's such I had a nice big number. Double check that. I was like, good lord, yeah. that's how they can buy back all that stock. Um, 2013, 11.3 billion, and then last year's twelve point one billion. What was staggering to me with Sandridge and Halcon was this is when an oil was at a hundred. Well, it, good lord. <laughs> as a business, these guys, you know, these these were very entrepreneurial people when it got started. Three to five years ago, basically they they were. This gets into what you were saying about wildcatter wildcatters versus investors, right? As a wildcatter, you, sometimes I, I don't. I'm picturing guys I, with ropes and cowboy hats and just a little different uh, divining rods. The divining rod of oil, <laughs> trying to go find oil out, out in the. No- Do you own one? No, I don't. Okay, uh, maybe I should though. You should. I should keep it at my desk. Uh, one of the things you see with these guys and. I don't want to disparage them in any way because they have completely transformed the energy landscape in the United States. But a lot of times they get, you know, kind of a, an ants under the skin. Like, I am going to find oil here. It's going to happen. And come heck or high water, I am going to do it here. And they'll pour a ton of money into, like, the initial wells, into the initial production. And once they do, they find themselves in the hole. Once that production starts to come online... And then they have to keep growing to keep keep the lights on, keep the uh, keep paying the bills and whatnot, and cover the expenses from that initial well. Um, and I, I sometimes I find that their their best option is what they see is we just need to keep growing production and everything will take care of the rest. It's like oh well, these guys produce more. Once we get up to that level will be fine. And that's not always necessarily the case. From, some... it, from an investor standpoint, when I see that, I can respect it. I just, as a as an investor who's looking for something sustainable over the very, very long term, I just see that and go, it doesn't, it, it looks too risky for me. I'm looking for somebody who has that free cash flow that can ride out a low oil price environment like we're in today. It seems like there are certain businesses where there's a residual slash repetitive nature to it where that does work. Um, I remember this great business case I read about how um, Michael Bloomberg actually runs Bloomberg LP. And he, everybody in that place is a salesperson. He just wants them to sell those terminals that cost 15, 20 grand a year and everything else will save itself. But Bloomberg LP does not have declining reserves. Yeah, I mean, this is... (laughs) That is a way, way different sort of thing. This is a business that is built on the idea of high capital intensity. The 
the minute the minute that a well is drilled, that reservoir is declining. There's less in it than the day before, and you have to go somewhere else to find new ones. It, it takes an extreme amount of capital to do it, and the companies that can keep production going, grow a little bit while maintaining the capital discipline to have a little bit of cash left over at the end of the day is is gold. And that's what you want to look for in an oil company. Free cash flow, baby. Boom. Very good. Well, thanks for your thoughts, Tyler. And that is it for us fools. But before we go, I wanted to make our listeners aware of a special offer. If you found this discussion informative and you're looking for more foolish stock ideas, Stock Advisor may be the service for you. It is our flagship newsletter started more than 10 years ago by Motley Fool co-founders Tom and David Gardner. We are offering the lowest price out there for our industry-focused listeners. It is $98 for a two-year subscription. You'll get two stock recommendations every month with, with insights from our team of analysts. Just go to focus.fool.com to take advantage of the deal. Once again, that is focus.fool.com. And as always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against those stocks, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear on this program. For Tyler Crow, I am Sean O'Reilly. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!